Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul. This week, I'm going to be sharing some of the most recent installments from my Substack, Money and the Meaning of Life. The essays, that's what an installment is, is an essay. It's like 700, 800 words. So not like long essays, not hard to read essays, but in fact, I'm going to read them for you today to prove to you that they're not hard to read. These include Dare to Suck, The Secret to Being Very, Very Rich, and lastly, Nobody Needs a House with Eight Toilets. As always, I try to make my insights into the role of money in our lives, the role of motivation and success in our lives, entertaining, lighthearted, but also thoughtful, pithy, you might even say. What is Substack? Substack, if you don't know, is a platform by which you can receive my thoughts directly into your email inbox on a buy or tri-weekly basis. Does that mean once every three weeks? I'm going to probably write about 25 of these this year, 24 maybe. So what is that? Once every 2.5 weeks, something like that. And if you want to receive that, you can sign up for it at paulollinger.substack.com, or you can click on the link in the show notes. Yes, Substack has an option by which you can pay to receive this, but I also have offer everything I write on Substack for free. If you want to pay, I'll be happy to send you some crazy money swag, a t-shirt, and or a tote bag with the lovely crazy money uh, logo and stylish shades of green. So do look for that link in the show notes to click to subscribe. While I appreciate every dollar people want to use to subscribe and help me subsidize the production of this podcast, it means absolutely as much to me that you share my writing, invite friends to listen to crazy money. So your love in whatever form it is expressed is appreciated, and I'm happy you're here. All right, let's jump into the first one. From May 4th, 2023, this one is called Dare to Suck, subtitle How to Chase Your Dreams, Part 1. Here we go. And it starts with a quote, an epigraph, I think you call him, from Epictetus. If you want to improve, be content to be thought foolish and stupid. I'm going to read that again. From Epictetus. If you want to improve, be content to be thought foolish and stupid. The t-shirt read, quote, dare to suck, unquote. I was sitting in my first day of intro to sitcom acting at Leslie Kahn and Company, a well-known acting school in Los Angeles, where my instructor had just handed me a pre-shrunk welcome gift. Considering the provocative command, I asked, and why in the world would you tell someone that they should suck? The instructor, a working TV actor with more than a decade in Hollywood, had seen plenty of new students cycle through this classroom, so he knew how to handle the new cohort's resident smartass. <laughs> that is me. Leslie's not saying that you should suck, he replied. She's saying that you do suck at acting now, but that you are here to suck less through study and hard work. This was in 2006, during my first stint chasing comedy full-time. A lot has happened since then, and I outgrew the t-shirt a long ways back, but the words dare to suck have always stuck with me. When I recommitted myself to stand up and writing eight years ago, I became fully aware of what living the DTS motto really means. The scary truth about any new pursuit or reinvention, artistic, athletic, or commercial, is that success lies on a distant shore across a perilous ocean of struggle. If you want to make it, you must embrace the suck. Mastery is a big deal for humans. Being really good at something creates a sense of well-being and purpose. It provides status, pride, a place in the world, and sometimes a source of income. Once attained, it is a great source of comfort. So you'd think that an author writing about self-development would encourage his readers to figure out what they're great at. But in his bestseller, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck, author Mark Manson does the opposite, asking instead, 
What pain do you want in your life? What are you willing to struggle for? The first time I read this, my reaction was similar to my confusion upon receiving the DTS t-shirt. But like Leslie's, Manson's non-obvious advice makes perfect sense. Mastery happens only after we invest the time and effort to get good at something. Parentheses, Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours rule. But practice means struggle, and because struggle is hard, we avoid tasks that don't mean that much to us. Manson challenges us to identify the thing we care about sufficiently to suck at long enough to master. Consider what it takes to learn a language. For a long time, I harbored the dream that someday, when time allowed, I would really learn to speak Spanish, which I had studied in high school and college. Five years ago, after six months of using Duolingo to refresh my vocabulary, I stepped up and enrolled in Una Clase de Español. I picked up, I picked up a lot pretty quickly, but only a few sessions in, I remembered why I'd stopped studying Spanish 29 years ago. Because it's hard. I had envisioned chatting with Messi after a match in Barcelona and delighting strangers with my bilinguality, but I didn't contemplate, nor was I committed to enduring years of talking like a moronic pre-kindergartner before I broke through to fluency. Manson contends, who you are is defined by what you're willing to struggle for, and this was an excellent example thereof. My unwillingness to tolerate the discomfort of speaking Spanish revealed that the goal just wasn't that important to me. In the words of a former colleague, the juice wasn't worth the squeeze. Comedy, however, was another matter. Boy, was I willing to suck at that. Here's my comedy class graduation tape from 2001. I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. It makes me cringe. While there are some clever lines in this set, this is a person who sucks at comedy. What's with my hand on my hip for the entire set? But you couldn't tell me that because I was protected by self-determination and self-delusion. And that's how you know. If you're crawling over the broken glass of imperfection and you still find yourself thinking, this is worth doing, then that's your thing. Your mission from there is to embrace the pain and keep going. So dare to suck, dare to fail, dare to make no money, dare to have no outward signs of progress, dare to get rejected by gatekeepers over and over and over. Keep daring, keep sucking, and keep getting better bit by barely perceptible bit until one day the shores of proficiency appear on the horizon. Sucking will set you free, but you have to want to do it. If you're not willing to suck, your dream isn't a dream. It's a fantasy. Do something else. I remember this uh, very clearly. I remember sitting in that class. I had better hair. I was uh, much thinner. I was younger. I had lots, uh, lots of dreams in my head, but I didn't realize how long the path to becoming okay at something like acting, like comedy was not long after this or before this I was doing comedy I was the host at the improvs in Orange County and I was opening for incredible comedians even though I'd only I had only done like 40 sets of comedy in my life and I was clearly at a much much lower level than the people I was working with and one night in the green room the late Ralphie May the very large comedian said to me Oh, man, don't worry. You, you'll start to get the hang of it in about eight years. I know that's a terrible Ralphie May impression. I apologize. But he said, you'll start to get the hang of it in about eight years. And I was like, eight years? I don't have eight years to get good at something. I was like, I had just come from the digital media world where I was making three, four $400,000 a year in income, which was incredible amount of money back then. And I'd kill to make three or $400,000 a year make, doing comedy right now. But but I was like, I knew what my opportunity cost was in that other sphere. And I couldn't see how there would be a payoff by spending eight years getting good at comedy. 
But I had spent eight years getting good at digital media sales. I'd spent eight years building a network, building knowledge, building my intuitive understanding of how the market worked. And that's why I'd earned that much money. And so anyway, if you want to start over as an entrepreneur, as an artist, whatever, you got to dare to suck. Okay. So far, so good, gang. We're covering the late spring and early summer of 2023, my thinking, and we're going to move on to some reflections I wrote about a book I had just read. It's called The Secret to Being Very, Very Rich. The book in reference is called How to Get Rich, and it was written by Felix Dennis, who was the founder of Dennis Publishing, the late Felix Dennis. The widest, most popular consumer title they had was called Maxim Magazine. That found its heyday in the, I think, mid to late 90s. And it was a really big deal. It's incredible to have read this book and think about his career uh, having witnessed the demise of significant decline, I should say, if not the almost total demise of print publishing over the last 20-something years. My friend Jesse Dwyer read the book, and having worked with Jesse a lot of my writing over the years and thinking about what my platform would be, you know, Jesse said, you've got to read this book. You've got to check it out because it was just written very frankly with a great deal of straightforward insight into what he had learned about getting rich and what it takes to get rich and to stay rich. And this is called The Secret to Being Very, Very Rich. Subtitle, Few People Have What It Takes. Quote at the top, Don't Confuse Desire with Compulsion from Felix Dennis. If you want to be rich, you have to be unreasonable. You have to do things outside the realm of practicality, safety, and politeness. Because to earn vast wealth, you must be compulsively driven toward that singular goal. Nothing else matters. So claimed Felix Dennis, the late founder of Maxim Magazine and Dennis Publishing, in his book, How to Get Rich. Dennis doesn't come at the subject the typical guidance of other get-rich authors, almost none of whom enjoys a net worth anywhere near the 400 million pounds Dennis had earned when he published his guide in 2008, a time at which the Great British Pound was double its current value. Perhaps that's why Dennis's advice feels so savagely authentic. Instead of preaching about dollar-cost averaging or portfolio diversification, Dennis offers the reader unvarnished insights into building and preserving ownership of a company, also known as the only way to go from zero to very rich unless you can monetize your talents like Tom Brady, Taylor Swift, or J.K. Rowling. As Dennis demonstrates through dozens of anecdotes, maintaining control of any entity worth controlling will drive you beyond the brink of reasonability time and time again. And so he comes to one of his main rules for success. Don't confuse desire with compulsion. Sure, everybody wants to have a lot of money, but very few people are willing or able to do whatever the hell it takes to fulfill that vision. Being unreasonably compulsive starts with resisting the siren song of a salaried career. Working for someone else, even in the C-suite, might make you very comfortable, but it won't make you very rich, which he defines as starting around $100 million in liquid assets. Forsaking life as an employee might sound easy, but try turning down a predictable income when you're living in squalor and your very patient girlfriend is threatening to walk. Even if you're down for this precarious path, you still need an idea that has the potential to grow into a thriving business and the moxie to get the ball rolling. 
Then you have to go out into the world with the thickest of skins and walk the, quote, narrow, lonely road to get the capital to make it so, unquote, an experience that Dennis found plagued with desperation and vultures. But our hero's journey has only begun. Beyond this, Dennis says, a founder must refuse to give in. You can't crumble when your creditors have you by the bollocks. You must not fold when key employees conspire to wrest away a piece of your enterprise. You have to scrap, improvise, and cajole to make payroll when cash flows trickle. You've got to resist the tempting lucre when private equity guys make you a juicy offer for 51% of your venture. In short, you must positively, absolutely maintain control no matter what. All of this will take a profound toll on your personal life because if you want to achieve mega wealth, work must trump relationships every single time. Any distraction, whatever, can cost you a chance that may not come again, Dennis explains. And for the purposes of this book, family, lovers, and friends are distractions, plain and simple. It made me wonder whether being a billionaire also requires you to be an asshole. I don't think so, but it seems clear to me that you need to be willing to have others call you an asshole. Being unreasonably committed to achieving your goals means forgoing a conventional lifestyle and saying no when good manners would suggest saying yes. This will provide ample evidence to others with relatively mediocre financial results that your gains are ill-gotten. 99.8% of people, me very much included, can't wrap their minds around the monomaniacal focus required to succeed at this scale. And because it's harder to accept reality than to rationalize this yawning success chasm, expect others to disparage your character, question your commitment to your children, suggest you broke the law, or took advantage of others to rise to such heights. Yes, if you want to be rich, you'll need to be okay with people talking shit about you behind your back, to your face, on social media, and in the press. Because once it's clear that you will become crazy wealthy, you also become an inhuman circus freak onto whom others project their insecurities and their bourgeois values to which they are suddenly so committed. There's no better example of this than the politicians and activists who chant, billionaires should not exist. Pondering Dennis's words helped me put my own situation into perspective. Had I stayed in the technology industry for another five years, I probably would have made it into the nine-figure club. But I wasn't sufficiently unreasonable. I wasn't having fun. I didn't want to work so hard. I wanted to help care for my aging parents and to give comedy a full swing. These are all very understandable, very reasonable goals that perfectly demonstrate the difference between desire and compulsion. So when I find myself coveting the trappings of the super rich or thinking snarky thoughts about Messrs. Musk or Bezos, I try to remember that their stratospheric success in no way diminishes the work I've done or the choices I've made. They picked an unreasonable path and reaped unreasonable rewards. Good for them. Felix Dennis would be proud. This book made me think. It, it also made me feel better, as I think maybe you can intuit from that last paragraph, that it really is super, super difficult for people to achieve stratospheric success in this world, financial success. Only a few people have the mental capability and the intestinal fortitude to make it through all the steps that Felix documents in his book, most of us, the incredible majority of us would give in to social convention, to politeness, to the desire to get a good night's sleep before achieving what they've achieved. The more I read in some episodes coming up, some books I've read recently, the more I read authors talk about how, you know, can you believe about the inequality in the world? It's like, the goal isn't to, to have as much money as Elon Musk. 
his accomplishments have nothing to do with another person's ability to earn a decent wage. Our goal should be to achieve economic autonomy and live in concert with our values. But no, we have to sit there and go, well, how can I be happy when Jeff Bezos has, has hundreds of billions of dollars? It's not about Jeff Bezos. What about he should be paying more taxes? Well, most of these billionaires have signed the giving pledge. They're going to give their money away. Bill Gates and Warren Buffett have contributed tens of billions of dollars to the Gates Foundation. Frankly, I trust the Gates Foundation to spend money a lot more efficiently than the United States government for a lot of reasons. So I just don't get, I just don't get the obsession with the super rich. And I think all of us would be much better off if we just focused on what we can do to achieve what we're trying to accomplish in our lives and not worry about the envy that keeps us from achieving our potential. Let's keep it going with some thoughts on, on declining marginal returns of luxury with my essay, Nobody Needs a House with Eight Toilets. I'm going to jump right into this one. Nobody Needs a House with Eight Toilets. The Declining Marginal Returns of Real Estate from June 22nd, 2023. I grew up in a house with eight people and three toilets. You're smart, so you've probably already done the math in your head. Eight people divided by three toilets equals 0.375 toilets per person, also known as TPP. Considered from a global perspective, this represents a plethora of porcelain. But international wealth equality is not on the mind of a 10-year-old who is trying not to pee his pants while one of his three sisters is locked in the bathroom curling her hair. This scarcity-induced trauma instilled in me a lifelong yearning for lavatorial autonomy. There's that word again, autonomy. So it should come as no surprise that today I live in a house with eight toilets to serve its four residents. Now my wife, kids, and I are literally surrounded by toilets. And there's a clever little image of me with stick figures, uh, eight stick figures with three toilets next to them, and then four stick figures with eight toilets around them. While I am happier to have more life choices, five times as many toilets per person has not rewarded me with 500% more life satisfaction. It's definitely better, but it's also a comical reminder that we often overspend on crap, sometimes literally, with the idea that buying the things we lack will get us closer to personal fulfillment. Image number two has toilets per person increasing by 533% and toilets increasing by 267%. Now versus then. There's truth to the expression, the things you own end up owning you, but it's not equally applicable to all purchases. Some of the ways we've spent on our home provide significant value, other things less so. For example, I turned a storage room in our basement into a little gym that I use five times per week. It was a home run investment. Our swimming pool, on the other hand, is an underutilized money pit. As the kids get older, we swim less and less, but the monthly bills keep coming. I also lack the technical expertise to know if the pool guy is scamming me when he says the sand filter needs replacing because the O-ring is worn out. I hear this and I think, O-ring? Isn't that what brought down the space shuttle? Then I fork over 800 bucks or whatever it costs to replace a $2 piece of plastic. Similarly, more toilets mean higher plumber bills, especially if your builder installed high-end German plumbing for which replacement parts must be flown in first class on Lufthansa. To be clear, I'm not whining about owning a big house or lamenting my own consumerist obsessions. I do like stuff, but it's clear that most of us have a tendency to consume well past the point of satiation, and the housing market has evolved to enable this inclination. According to census.org, the percentage of newly built U.S. homes with 2.5 bathrooms or more tripled from 1978 until 2016, and those with three-plus bathrooms almost quintupled. Americans love toilets. Are there more people living in each home? No. 
In fact, average residents per household decreased during this time by 16% from 3.01 to 2.54, while home size increased by 61% to 2,687 square feet. So those dirty 70s hippies had 551 square feet each, and the average clean 2015 person enjoyed 1,057 square feet. I'm part of the problem. My parents' 2,251-square-foot home provided just over 280 square feet for each of its eight inhabitants until my older siblings finally moved out. My current 6,450-square-foot home accommodates each of us with 1,612 square feet but isn't even close to the biggest house in our neighborhood. Some dude down the street just built a 50,000-square-foot monster, which is rumored to have a 20-car garage in the basement to showcase his vintage Porsches and Ferraris. It makes our place look positively quaint. So what's the optimal home size? I don't know. And the question is complicated by the fact that a home is static while one's needs are fluid. We bought this place when my kids were basically infants. Back then, I just wanted enough space so that I didn't have to take my shoes off as soon as I walked in the front door for fear of waking a sleeping baby. That was absolutely the case in our previous home, a 1,500-square-foot Los Angeles bungalow which, by the way, is now priced at over $2.2 million. Now that my kids are teenagers, I would happily trade interior space for a bigger yard in which we could kick the soccer ball around for however many fleeting evenings they might agree to do so. In six years, they'll both be out of high school, and we will, presumably, be empty nesters banging around this big old lonely shell. Since spatial requirements change over time, it would be a lot easier if houses were made out of Play-Doh. You could just add a little space when you need it, then subtract as your needs decline. But that's not reality. So we just buy the most we can afford, stick with it for a certain number of years, and then correct during life's inflection points. Despite anecdotal stories about van life and tiny homes, I don't see the trend reversing anytime soon. The pandemic drove sales of second homes to record levels, and I bet you can guess who succumbed to this trend. That's right. Yours truly is currently typing at 4,000 feet above sea level, surrounded by the Blue Ridge Mountains and seven additional toilets. What could possibly go wrong? It's a massive privilege, but also totally absurd how, as we fulfill one desire, a new one creeps in. Not long ago, I was playing golf with a well-known comedian who grew up in a one-toilet house. After explaining my theory of bathroom opulence to him, I asked what his current TPP was. I don't know, he said, taking the cigar from his mouth. Should I count the shitter on my plane? The end. Yeah, so we did spend several weeks at this second house in the mountains this summer. It was lovely, but it's weird. You can't be in two places at one time and having a second home. This is our first experience with it, but it's like, it's like a limbo. It's like, you're not on vacation, but you're on vacation. I'm sure we're going to figure out how to strike the best balance and have the right kind of energy and use it to maximize relaxation at an appropriate trade off to productivity but it's a different energy. When you're at the beach, you're at the beach. And I had trouble relaxing at the beach too. Maybe that's the maybe that's the tendency I should be focusing on. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed these. Like I said, the link to the Substack is in the show notes. That means go back to the app you're listening to this on, scroll through the notes explaining this episode. You can see the highlighted words that will take you to the website. Click on that, subscribe, rate the podcast. I appreciate your endorsement. Please share it with your friends. And we will be back next week with another great episode of Crazy Money. Have a good one.